Ecclesiastes chapter 4, if you have your Bibles. We're in the process of examining what the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, has to say to us about this chase that we're all on to find meaning and purpose in life. Now, preaching class, they told us one of the things you really don't want to do as a rule is to state the obvious. And I'm going to begin today by stating the obvious. I know that when you look at me, the first thing that comes to your mind is that guy is the picture of health and athleticism. What's the laughter? Well, actually, uh, we would all love to be considered that way. I was thinking earlier today, I hadn't really planned on saying it, but uh, talking in the earlier service, and I was reminded of a time that I went to Turkey, I had the opportunity to go and tour the seven churches of Revelation. The book of Revelation, all are in those seven churches. first few chapters are found in modern-day Turkey. And part of that trip, we went to the capital city, which was Ankara. And in Ankara, there is a museum there that is the Hittite Museum, one of the ancient, powerful kingdoms. Uh, you'll find them referenced in the Old Testament. And there's this museum dedicated particularly to them through history. And uh, there's some sculptors and uh, sculptures that are outside on the walkway going in, as is the case with most statues that uh, were made before the Muslim world kind of took over there. Um, these statues don't have heads on them. They originally did, but they were cut off by the Muslim because there was some kind of a, a graven image or a... Um, demonic kind of influence or whatever. So wherever you go, Roman Empire is stretching forward. Muslims just cut off the heads of those statues. So you find a lot of headless statues all over the place, which kind of reminded me of churches I've served in the past. But um, in this particular case, uh, there was one that was out front, and it was this sculptured, lean, you know, six-pack stomach kind of thing. I prefer the keg stomach, but that's another story too. Uh, and so I decided I needed a picture of this. So I stood behind this statue that had its head cut off and I just got where they could just see my head and I had a friend of mine take the picture. And so I finally got the body that I was looking for and I didn't have to pay a dime for it. Um, anyway, that's beside the point. Not really. One of the things that I love to watch on TV, and as a matter of fact, I try to make it a point to catch it on TV every year if I possibly can, is the, I guess it's kind of a documentary, it's a sports deal about the most recent Ironman triathlon that's run in Kona, Hawaii every year. And many of us have seen those, I know, but one of the reasons I like to watch those, I used to be a runner and used to run marathons, and uh, you know that is kind of the picture of the athletic person, a tribute to the individualism that is the American spirit of our day. And I like those, first of all, for the sheer accomplishment of those athletes. If you're not familiar with the Ironman Triathlon, uh, they begin their day with a 2.1-mile swim in the open ocean. If you're not much of a swimmer, let me tell you something. That's just lunacy to do that, all right? Uh, And then they, because that's not enough for these individualistic overachievers... When they finish this 2.1-mile swim in the open ocean, then they jump on a bicycle and ride for around 110 miles across the lava bed fields of Hawaii. Temperatures way higher than they ought to be. Uh, and so it takes them X number of hours to do that, depending on what kind of shape they're in. 
110 miles on a bicycle, you can just imagine how they walk on the next day. If that's not enough for you, they finish that by running a marathon, a full marathon, 26.2 miles. So in one day's time, these athletes go through the spectrum of depletion of physical energy and the mental and emotional strain that it brings. I love watching those just for the sheer athleticism that we see. But it is a picture for us of the American spirit of our day. That individualistic, we can do it, I can do it specifically, and I'm going to push myself to see to it that I get there. Well, that's something of a problem for us, that spirit that we find there. We come to this passage of Scripture today, and what we find is that the preacher takes that spirit and he throws it on the ash heap of history and he says to us, you can't go it alone. Now that's a problem for us. Because as I said, I personally believe that that individualism is the order of the day in American society. That is more or less who we believe we are. You want a good example of that? Look to Washington and see how much is being accomplished in the name of let's work together. So in... This particular point of reference for us today, I've entitled this message, Better a Rope Than a String. And the preacher, the writer of Ecclesiastes, helps us with that. Let's just come to this passage. I want to show you a couple of things. First of all, he begins with a contrast between two lifestyles. There is that isolationistic approach to living and that part that says companionship is what we need. And this is in the first few verses here. Verses 7 and 8, we find this picture of isolationism. Let's read, or you can follow along. Actually, I should also say this before I start reading. The first six verses of this passage that we're not going to read kind of set the tone for what we get to in verse 7. Uh, he's really looking at social ills and... Uh, uh, essentially saying a guy who's trying to go it alone is at the mercy of the state kind of a thing and other things that are tied to that. So we pick up in verse 7 where he emphasizes isolationism and listen to what he says. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. In other words, as I looked at creation as it is, I saw that it's just meaningless at another point. Verse 8, one person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all of his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? In other words, he says, I'm doing all of this work. I'm engrossed in my job. I'm working upon work day in, day out. And as he does so, he never takes the time to step back and ask the question, why am I doing this? And particular, as we find in this passage, the focus of this whole thing that he's talking about, this guy has nobody else. There's no family members there for him. He mentions particularly son or brother. In other words, in their society, there's nobody who would inherit the stuff that he's working on even. There's nobody to pass it on to. So what he's doing is he's just working himself to death, day in, day out, just going through the motions of life without ever stepping back and saying, well, what in the world am I doing? And his summary conclusion from these two verses is, it makes no sense. 
Now, this is one of those times that I think that it's good for us to pause long enough to understand what he's driving at. We were made for relationships. Now, that's hard for me to say that to a congregation that is made up entirely of Americans. And I don't mean necessarily citizenship, but just Western thinking. Because the mantra of the Western world seems to be, I'm going to get mine. But you see, God didn't create us so that we could get ours. He created us for relationship from the very beginning of the human thing. In the Garden of Eden, God, now ladies, you'll like this. In the Garden of Eden, God created man. And after he had created everything, Genesis 1 tells us, God stepped back and he looked at it and he said, what did he say? That's good. Actually, the Hebrew of that is a superlative stacked on a superlative. It's better, than, it's better than I can even put into words. But immediately we turn in the creation saga and, and it zeroes in on Adam. And I'm going to paraphrase it, put it in the Rotramalese for you. God looked at Adam and he said, that boy ain't right. You go read it. That's not exactly the way he says it. That's my paraphrase. But he says he looked at Adam and he said, that boy needs help. There's no helper suitable for him. Now, think about all that God had created. All of the stuff, the complexity of creation, the complexity of Adam. And God looked at him and he saw that something was lacking. So what did he do? He put him to sleep. Now, see, guys, there's good biblical argument for crashing in the recliner this afternoon. Okay? God's behind this. Okay? Put him to sleep, and he created what? A woman. A wife, to be exact. Eve. And then God stuck back and said, that's what I'm talking about. Okay, so from day one, I'm going to pick on the guys a little bit because I am one, and that helps me a little bit to get away with it. Um, From day one, God said, guys, you need help. Ladies, you complete him, and he completes you. We're created for relationship. From the very beginning, God saw that isolationism was not the order of the day. Is that you with me on that? Hello? Hello? Let it sink in, all right? By the way, I'm not talking about marriage here. I'm talking about created for each other. Now, let's take another step with that. Because the order of the day in our society seems to be go it alone. As a matter of fact, I personally believe, and I I think I'm pretty close to being right about this after doing this for a number of years now. Churches across America are full of people just like ours here today. And I believe that because the order of the day is isolationism, that even though people who are filling churches today together, we fill churches as individuals most of the time. There's a big difference in what I'm saying. We are so locked into the individual approach to living that even though we find ourselves in the midst of a crowd, we're alone. I had a great example of this at the close of the first service this morning. 
I had been talking through all of this stuff and, you know, they got even to the end of it. And so one of those people came to me afterwards and they said, you know, what you're talking about, we saw that. We went somewhere with our family. Now this is like grandparents talking. And so they said, we went somewhere with our family. We got together and it was us and it was our children and it was our grandchildren all in the same room. And as we sat there, we, the older set, looked at one another and we were the only ones who did not have our heads stuck to our phones or to our iPads. I challenge you to go to a restaurant and watch couples at the tables. Don't watch me and Teresa. Watch somebody else, all right? Because the tendency is, and by the way, I look at our kids here, and that's part of what they do. Some of you get all upset because they do that. And I happen to know that some of them have Bibles on their phones, okay? And so they're following along scripturally, right? Isn't that what y'all told me to say? Okay. We're wired... Okay, I'll, I'll be really up to date with it. We're wireless for individuality and individualism in our day. He starts off. Before we even get to the, this is what we're looking for, he starts off by observing that in those days, before wireless internet, before internet, before computers, before electricity, there was still a problem with living life as a lone ranger. Verses 7 and 8. And by the way, his frustration comes out. He says, it just makes no sense. Boy, so many of these things in this sermon series that I'm working on cause me to want to step back and just yell from the rooftops of America, listen up, we're going down the wrong road. Churches today full of people and yet... People who are alone, despondent, many of them will get to some of that. So verses 9 through 14 give us the other side of this contrast. Verses 7 and 8, he's emphasizing isolationism. Verses 9 through 14 talks about companionship or better said community. And so let's read along together now. This is in chapter 4 verse 9. Here's the principle. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. And here's another principle. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. By the way, that's where I got the title for the sermon. Better to be a rope, the threefold cord, than a string. Now, I want you to notice what he's done here. In verses 9 through 14, he's started off with a proverb, a statement. It's better not to be alone. And he ends it in verse 14 with the statement, a threefold cord is not easily broken. And that's used as a literary device that keeps the whole thing tied together as a unit. And so the way this is written for us in poetic and wisdom kind of style of writing, he uses a mechanism that would jump off the page to his readers of his time. Hey, I'm making a single point here. And what's his point? The point is, don't be a a string, be a rope. Now, maybe I should explain something that's part of this. Effectively, what he's saying to us in verses 9 through 14 is that we need to come to this and recognize that this is not just spending time together. 
You walk your way through that, and what he's talking about in those examples that he gives, by the way, there's four of them. We'll get to those, or at least some of them before this is over. But he's using that to say this is more than just being in the same room together. This is about being invested in one another. Now, the overall conclusion then, the principle that drives the whole thing is, based on this contrast, it's a simple truth. Companionship and community is better than isolation. Now, let's take a vote. Do we agree with that or not? And don't raise your hands. The reason I don't want you to raise your hand is because I think as Americans, we're really bad, American Christians that is, we're really bad about saying out of one side of our mouth, yes, that sounds great, I vote for it. But out of our other side of our mouth, we have to admit that we don't live that way most of the time. Well, at least not at the level that he seems to be pushing us here. Practically speaking, our society is wired for isolationism. And that's how even Christian people seem to tend to live their lives. Think about your home. Think about the access of our day to the world at large from your home. Now, when I was a kid, I was born in 1900, none of your business. Uh, And when I was born, television was around, all right? Now, it was mostly black and white, maybe all black and white. That's, it is what it is, right? Uh, And there were basically three channels, And so the world that got into our world was pretty limited. Nowadays, we have hundreds of channels on the television. But beyond that, and by the way, up-and-coming generations are not even going to television too much because they can watch the stuff they want on demand online. And so the world opens up to us through our computer monitor. But I want you to get the picture of this. No longer do we need to go out and interact with people outside because we can get all of the input we want from the inside. And so we sequester ourselves into our homes and into our offices. And we just kind of experience life through that monitor. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that's all bad. I'm just trying to make a point. We are geared in our society, wired, if you will, to not have to go out and do stuff. My, I told you before, one of my friends, the church I came from, said that when America took a turn for the worse is when air conditioning was created. Because no longer did people sit out on their porches and have discussions from neighbor to neighbor. Now they could just shut the doors and go inside. Well, there's some truth to that. And by the way, I'm not up here arguing for the good old days because they weren't that good in the first place. I'm trying to get to the point that helps us to see that our society contributes to this idea of being individual and being isolated in the process of doing that. Even in church, we come and it is largely a consumer orientation. We go in, what they got for me today? Is the music good? Is the preaching good? If so, maybe I'll be back next week. But many people wander in and wander out. I've told many of you before, God had to do a major work to put me up here to do this. Because if it was just left to me, I'd be the guy who came in late. By the way, I'm not giving you ideas here. I'd be the guy who came in late, sat on the back row, and left early so that I didn't have to deal with people. That's America. 
at least in large part, I think that's the American church of our day. And just in case you're sitting there thinking, well, you know, that's not always true, preacher. I have my circles. Yeah, but one of the things that seems to be true of our day, at least some of the psychologists that I've read, seem to say that we have reduced relationships to surface levels. I don't listen to preaching on the radio very often. Occasionally I do, but uh, for a variety of reasons, I just don't very much. Um, and, but this week I happened to be, I was driving, I was thinking through this sermon and uh, the, the truth's tied to it all. And so I kind of flipped on the radio at one point and, and it was on a station, there was a guy preaching. And he was talking about something that ties directly to this. He's talking about the levels of relationship that we try to build with one another as it plays out in our conversations. Here's what he said. Most conversations between people these days occurs on the surface level. It's the conversation that is quick and easy and uncomfortable if it lasts too long. Hey, how you doing? It's good to see you. Now, the how you doing, by the way, is certainly not intended to get information back. It's just something that we say, according to this guy. And so it's that surface level. And we, many of us, just live at that level. And so we go through our lives and we bump shoulders with people and the conversation never gets below the surface. The second level in, he said, is something along the lines that as we get below the surface, we don't want to go too deep. And so we leave it at points like, hey, that's a nice looking outfit you got on. Or we might even say, if we're really stricken with honesty, boy, you look awful today. But we really don't want to go any deeper than that. We might ask about kids and how your kids doing and hadn't seen you in a while and, you know, how about those cowboys and, you know, that kind of thing. It's, it's not just surface. It's a little deeper than that. But he said the level we ought to try to get to is the level that we can sit down and say, you know what, you look awful today. What's going on in your life? And then you pause, shut up, and listen. But you see, an individual approach that isolationistic approach that we have doesn't really want to be bothered by the people. Matter of fact, that's kind of the point of this, I think. I think many people, we talk about things like this, and by the way, I know some of you have been studying this in Sunday school, and you think that your teacher and I have been teaming up on you now, and that's what the deal is. By the way, I'm going to also do this tonight in our study of the book of Psalms. We're on a Psalms tonight that talks about community. This is part of our spiritual DNA. Okay, that's, that's a misstatement. This is part of our DNA as people. God made us for relationships. And when we break down and buy into the level of thinking that is predominant in our society today, we may surround ourselves with people, but we'll be as alone as we ever were, even in crowds. Even in our homes, we find ourselves, as one guy said, living lives of quiet desperation. And we can't figure out what went wrong. The preacher, Koheleth, says to us, it makes no sense to go it alone. So before I stop and take the next step, let me ask you this. Are you based on the stuff we're talking about, are you living your life as a string or as a rope? You understand the difference now? The rope, the three cords, you know, wraps around, it's stronger, it has, it's not living alone out there. 
That's the string. That's the thread part of our lives. So how is it with you? If you really get honest and look at your life, who is part of your circle? It's an important question because I think that when we hear this kind of stuff, churches will say essentially, that's right, preacher, but there's one problem with what you're saying. I'd be happy to go where you're telling us to go on this community thing, on this companionship thing, this investing our lives in one another. The only thing that keeps me from doing it are the daggum people that are involved when it comes down to it. You know, if it wasn't for the people, this would be a great idea. I've been at church work for a while now. And I regularly hear people who essentially say to me this, that person, and they'll identify them for me usually, is more powerful than God is. They never say it that way. But what they say is, well, you know what? I would get involved in church, but I got hurt somewhere back there, and I just can't, I'm just not going to do that anymore. And you're telling me, That what God says is how we're built does not carry enough weight for you to overcome the power of one person who hurt you somewhere in the past. I know some of you are thinking you could have talked all day and not said that. That's the truth. We are wired for relationship and for community. It's part of how Adam was made. It's part of how we're made. It continues on and it's trumped even further By the way, God set up the body. There's a term for you called the church. We need each other. And yet we live in a world that emphasizes go it alone. And we celebrate individual achievement and we believe that it's the cat's meow for us. And yet we find ourselves hurting alone much of the time. So let's take another step here. In case you're sitting out there going, okay, sounds good in theory. I, do, I really do want to do what God calls me to do with this. And I want to, you know, if God's saying I need to invest my life in people and allow them to invest their lives in me, as much as I don't want to do it, I want to do it. But I got to have good reason to do it. I can't just take your word for it, okay? So don't take my word for it. Take the preacher's word for it, this one in here, okay? Because he gives us four reasons as we walk through. And I'm not going to have time to go through all four of them. I'm going to get two of them at least. And you'll find there's enough reason here in what he gives for at least you to step back and say, okay, I need to kind of rethink some things in my life here. So here we go. Verse 9. Here's the first one. The, the principle is this. Companionships helps us to accomplish more. Now that's verse 9. I'm going to read verse 9 in just a second. But here, here's where I want to start. When I was about to get married, my dad, who was a pastor, sat me down. Now, I already told you, dad and I didn't get along. We didn't see things the same way. And, you know, I was right and he was wrong, um, that kind of thing. And, or so I thought. And so we get ready to get married. And uh, I was coming out of some bad days and some bad thinking. And he knew that. So he sat me down. And he said, so I'm going to tell you something about getting married. And this will help you if you'll really grab hold of it. I said, okay, what is it? He said, two can live as cheaply as one. And I was going, and then he added, for half as long. Think about it. Because I had the same reaction you do. I was thinking, Dad, 
So? But see, my dad had a way of saying stuff to me, still does, that kind of makes me walk away going, what's up with that? But then I can't get out of it. It's like it just, like a worm bores itself into your brain, you know? And so I was walking away going, two can live as cheaply as one for half as long. What do you mean by that? Well, in verse 9, we kind of get that stated in a positive way. Or at least I think that's the way. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If you get married, now we had a wedding here last night. I always love, I always love weddings when it's me not, well, no, that doesn't sound right, I don't want to say it that way. When it's me not getting married, that's true but not true. Um, I'm very married now, so I don't want to have to do it again. That's what I mean. Oh. Here's what I really would like to say about this. When I I go to a wedding, whether I'm performing it or not, I first of all look at the couple that's getting married, and they're all happy and it's wonderful. We had this yesterday, right? And I'm thinking to myself, you have no clue what's ahead of you. If you only knew. The other side of it is, I look at that and I say, you know, and this is true. And you've got to know it's true. When you get it right, wow, it's good. So they don't have any clue what's ahead of them for that either. Right? But the only way that it's right and that you get it right is when you come into that relationship and you invest yourself in the other person. That's what we're talking about here. That's what he's saying in verse 9. When they come together, and he's not talking about marriage, he's just talking about companionship here and community. But when you invest yourself in the other person and they invest in you, both of you go places you could never go. That's verse 9. Two can live as cheaply as one for half as long, but when two come together with pooled resources, they can live twice as long. That's what my dad was trying to say too. And by the way, it's twice as good when they do. That makes sense? All right. So the principle is companionship helps us to accomplish more. Notice the word that's used here. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Now, that's English Standard Version. New International Version uses instead of reward, it uses return. That's an investment kind of language. If you have money, I started to say extra money, but nobody has extra money, right? If you have money... To invest, you desire and you expect a return on that. Right? Hello? One of the great statements I heard. Remember this church. How you doing? What, what are you up to today? He said, I'm putting some money to work. And I thought, wow, what a great way to, per- to, to perceive that. Most of us just spend it. This guy says, I'm putting money to work. Great perception. It's an investment. So let's take that picture into your relationships. Are you investing? Are you putting your relationships to work? That's the picture. Companionship helps us to accomplish more. By the way, that's one of the reasons as a church, we went within the last year to a committee-based structure because I believe and we believe as a church that we all together can do much more than one preacher sitting in an office can do. Or one preacher and a group of deacons can do. This is how we're built. This is how we function. 
We come together and we invest ourselves in one another. It makes each of our individual lives better than it would be if we were just out there sailing along on our own. But it also allows us to accomplish more. So let me stop and ask you again. Are you a string or a rope? Are you invested into the life of this church where you're investing yourself in the life of other people so that together we do better in accomplishing God's work in this community? This is fundamental stuff. Basic churchianity 101. Excuse me. Let's look at the second one quickly and I'll close with this. This is in verse 10. Here's the principle. Companionship offers help in times of trouble. For if they fail or fall, one will lift up his fellow. And they're not going to do that, by the way, if they're not invested with one another. Exhibit A for that is Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. The church people walked right past the guy who had been beaten up and left on the side of the road. They weren't going to help him up. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and he has not another to lift him up. Let me just train your attention. I'm going to give you a series of illustrations here from one guy. And I'll close with these. If you haven't or if you're not currently... In a fallen state, I'm not talking about sin, I'm talking about, well, maybe it does fit that, but I'm talking about just in your life. If you had a point or haven't been at a point where you reach rock bottom and you're alone and you know you're alone and you need help, if you haven't reached that, then hang on because there's a good chance that life's going to bring that to your doorstep at some point. The preacher says, It's better when you get to that point that you're not alone, that there's somebody who sees you there can pick you up. A member of our church regularly gives me CD recordings of various programs. Now, uh, some of them are sermons and some of them are just recordings of interviews on radio. And I kind of think... I don't really think that he's doing that because he's saying, really, Mark, you should listen to this and get better. Please get better. I don't think that's what he's doing. Might be. But uh, whatever the case, I take those things and I listen to them because I know the guy's heart. And uh, every time they bless me in one way or another. And so last week he gave me a couple of these things. And so I was listening to them driving back and forth. Lots of hospitals this week. We, we had a lot of people who found themselves alone in a hospital bed this week. This is just kind of reiterates the stuff we're talking about. I was driving back and forth to the hospital. I was listening to these things. And one of them is a Focus on the Family interview with Ed Overstreet. He's a pastor from California. He was saved during the Jesus movement back in the 60s out in California. And his life embodies this verse. If you need a reason to get involved and invested with one another, listen to his story. Ed Overstreet has a disease. It's a blood disease I, don't, I can't pronounce what it is, so I'll tell you the way he said it because it communicated to me. He said, the disease that I have is a blood disease, essentially this, my blood declares war on my skin. And it, for lack of a better term, it attacks from the underside of the skin and it, he just, it, you can just imagine the bodily fluids that are involved. It's just, he said, it's a horrible, horrible thing and incredibly painful It's a very rare thing, but the people who have it have this in common. The mortality rate from the disease is high, but it's not from the disease itself. It's because they get so engrossed in pain that they commit suicide. 
He said, it is a horrible disease. And he's pastor of a church out in California. And he said when he first was diagnosed with this degree, uh, disease and it was working on him, uh, he said he, just, he, he knew that he was just sliding into a negative mental, spiritual, emotional state. He wasn't able to work anymore. Because of that, that attacked a certain part of who he was. And uh, his church continued to pay him and support him through all of that. And yet at the same time, he, that made him feel more guilty about not being able to be there. And he, he just he couldn't go out and do anything. He, just, he looked horrible because his skin was just falling off. He said at several points in there, he determined that he was going to join the rest of the people with the disease and just commit suicide and just end it all. And God stopped him various ways through the course of that. Four different instances of this verse in his life are worth mentioning this morning. First of all, he said that there was a, a girl in his church, a young lady. Her name was Judy. And she hadn't been saved very long. She had been saved through the ministry of that church, accepted Christ as her Savior. And uh, when she found out that he was in such bad shape, she called him and she said, hey, Eddie. And he said, hi, Judy. And she said this to him. And this is a quote. I love you and I don't want you to die. Now, my first response to that is, and you better have a pretty good relationship with somebody if you're going to tell them you don't want them to die. But most of us skirt the issue enough because we don't really want to use the D word about dying. And so we kind of you know, try to build them up. She cut straight to the chase. I love you and I don't want you to die. He said, you cannot imagine what that did for me. He says, as a matter of fact, I've repeated that sentence time after time at the bedside of people that I know, that I love, I love you, and I don't want you to die. Another example from his life helps me also. One of the elders of his church, an old man, he said, when Ed was in a really bad shape, bad condition, laying in that hospital bed, not sure if they were going to make it through this particular bout or not, this old elder from his church came out to where he was and he said, uh, this old guy in the spirit of the Old Testament prophet laid himself across me on that bed and he prayed this prayer. God, don't let this boy die. Again, I'll tell you, it takes a pretty significant level of investment in somebody when they're on their deathbed to be able to talk about dying. That's not comfortable for anybody. But he said that prayer went from that room to the church office, out through, through emails and internet to Dallas Theological Seminary where he had gone. That prayer went across the world. God, don't let this boy die. And he was built up in his weakest moments. Another example, third of four. One of his friends saved in that Jesus movement with him and they kind of grew up together with his other friend of his, hit it big. And he is rich man. And he flew across the country to where Ed was in very bad shape, 
not sure if he was going to live or not. And he came in and he walked into the room where Ed was and he asked Ed's wife to leave the room. After she left, closed the door. He said, this guy looked me in the eyes and he said to this, Ed, I'm a rich man. Now, Ed said, so, in his mind, so, how does that help me? I'm laying here and I've got a disease I can't do anything with. But he went on to say this, I'm a rich man and if you die, I'll take care of your wife for you. You see, when we're invested in each other, we anticipate needs of the other. They don't have to even say what it is because we're tied in enough with them. We know enough about them to know how they're thinking, what their needs are. Last one. One of his friends, on a night that they were sure he was not going to make it, sat at his bedside. And he said as he was delirious and he would come in and out of consciousness and it was a horrible situation. And they, like I said, they weren't sure he was going to make it through the night. His friends sat next to him through the night. And in those moments when Ed would come to and look over at his friend, his friend would lean into him and whisper in his ear, Ed, I love you. Jesus loves you. And we're both here. All of us know that Jesus loves us. Many people have no clue who else does. We're made for community. Don't live like a string. Be a rope. Let's pray. And so, Father, we come asking you to take us as we are, but not leave us there. It's hard for us to hear these kind of messages because our tendency is to be so self-focused in that spirit of individualism that all we hear is where we've been wronged and the things that keep us on the defensive, that keep us from reaching out and loving people and investing in them. So help us to get that right. We pray that you would heal those hurt places. Some, some of those hurts are deep. Some of them might even be considered wounds that should have never occurred and they cut and they even end our life in one way or another. Pray you'd meet us there. And help us to see how much we need other people. But also, Father, we ask you to help us to see how much they need us. That we would reach out of our pain into the situation begin to be the church that you call us to be in this community. A church that is known for the way it loves people. Help it to be so. Help it to start today. In Jesus' name.